Hey, man. Hey, Eric. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good, thanks. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, good. Can you hear me? Oh. Yep, brilliant. Cool, good, 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 good. So how's everything over there? Yeah, it's good. Just in the middle of our assessment period at the moment, so a little bit hectic, but it's, uh, yeah, it's going well. Um, I was, I suppose, fortunate enough to get COVID last week, so I actually missed some of the practical assessments I should have been doing, but my colleagues probably aren't too happy with the fact they had to cover for me, but <laughs> there wasn't much more I could do. <laughs> but no, things are good. Things are good at the moment. Is your body okay? Yeah, yeah. Everything's fine. Um, luckily, while I had COVID, the minimal symptoms, just a bit of a cold, but didn't want to pass it on to my colleagues and all the students. Um, <laughs> that wouldn't have been fair, really. Um, so, but yeah, all, everything's going well. Uh, everything seems almost back to normal now, which is great. Cool. So, I I noticed you from the like the podcast you did with Rob Pacey. Yep. And did a did a research on your Google from your research, and hear the podcast you did. Really love it. Okay, so first of all, like, can you introduce yourself for the audience? Yep, no problem. I'm Dr. Paul Comfort. I'm a reader in strength and conditioning at the University of Salford. Uh, for those of you that don't know where Salford is, it's within Greater Manchester in the UK. Um, yeah, I've been here now. I'm in my 14th year at the university. Uh, prior to that, I was at Middlesex University, um, the universe, uh, college in South End on Sea on the southeast coast, working for the University of Essex. And prior to that, um, Southampton University. Um, yeah. Cool. So the first thing I want to ask is about like the isometric testing. So what is the correlation between the isometric testing and the uh, dynamic strength training? And how does, how does it affect the performance? Well, there's really strong correlations between peak force during things like the isometric mid-thigh pull and the isometric squat and performance and other strength tests. So things like 1RM um, power clean, 1RM um, squat, snatch, etc. Um, so there's strong correlations there. There's also strong correlations with things like sprint, change of direction, and jump performance as well. So basically, if you're stronger, especially relative to your body mass, because all of those tasks, you have to accelerate your mass. So if your relative strength is higher, so your peak force divided by your mass, um, there tends to be a very good relationship between that level of performance in terms of your peak force and the isometric test and performance in dynamic athletic tasks and dynamic strength tests. Now, that doesn't mean that if you keep practicing on something like an isometric mid-five pull or an isometric squat and get better at performing the test, you will get better in your sport. Um, there's, you know, a correlation doesn't mean cause and effect, but what we do find is if you increase your general strength, um, ma maximal strength or rapid force production, so force at different time points, you then get a subsequent increase in performance in those other tasks. So, for example, if you increase your, your general strength, your back squat improves, your isometric mid-thigh pull performance increases, so your relative peak force goes up, your short sprint performance, so acceleration over 5, 10, 20 meters, also improves uh, by that you know it doesn't you end up with a shorter time to complete that distance and therefore you'd end up with a higher average velocity um, so it's not that if you increase the performance by performing those tasks and um, th that you get better you have to just get stronger then reevaluate somebody after a, maybe a four or eight week period of training and there should be an increase in their maximum force rapid force production depending on the what you're emphasizing in your training and that should also um, lead to some improvements in um, rapid force production during athletic tasks as well. There is sometimes a bit of a lag. So if you've done a high volume period of strength training, you might have to wait a week or two until you see the improvements in athletic performance because of residual fatigue. Uh, the residual fatigue rarely affects peak force um, during the isometric tests, but you do normally notice um, a bit of a dip or a bit of a, a a lag time with things like force at 150 or 250 milliseconds or rate of force development over those time points. Cool. 
So is there like any test you do besides isometric mid pole or like core squat? Yeah, so if, if it's to assess the uh, the performance or, you know, changes in strength and force production characteristics, it all depends on the athletes we're working with. So there's normally some form of sprint test, some form of change of direction test, it, because most, most of the time we're working with team sports where they're important. Um, but then we'll also normally assess things like their 1RM in certain lifts, purely because we can use the 1RM or a percentage of 1RM for programming. Whereas we can't use your isometric mid-thigh pull performance to program the load you'd use during uh, other exercises. So we'll, okay. we'll do those as a matter of course, but that tends to be built into, if possible, if we're working really closely with the teams, built into their final week of, <clears throat> of training for that four, six or eight week block. So when they'd normally have a taper or a deload, rather than doing high volumes, we might reassess some of their 1RM performances. Along with that, we normally also make sure we have something like a counter movement jump assessed on the force plates um, and if possible some form of rebound jump although there are issues with the variables you get from some rebound jump tests so we'll look for something like a counter movement jump so that we can evaluate their dynamic performance as well and that will allow us to calculate their dynamic strength index so the ratio between their um, isometric mid thigh pull peak force and the counter movement jump peak force and what we're looking for there is if they're getting above uh, a point eight, so 80, more than 80% of their um, isometric mid-thigh pull peak force being expressed during a counter movement jump, then they're effective and efficient at producing that force in a dynamic, uh, more ballistic type task. Uh, if it's below 0.6, then they probably need to emphasize their ballistic force production more. However, there are some exceptions. If you look at that in basketball players, some of the basketball players have really high peak forces, low counter movement jump peak force because they go through a big displacement. You know, there's quite a big, uh, quite a decent squat depth when they're jumping, which results in relatively low forces in relation to their depth, to their isometric mid thigh pull peak force. So you also have to look at jump height as well because jump height isn't determined by your peak force. It's determined by the relative net impulse, so the force times time, or the mean force multiplied by the propulsion time. Um, and that's what determines our, our jump height. So if we've gone through a big range of motion, you might not produce a huge force, but you'll produce it over a longer duration because you've gone through that bigger range of motion. And then you can still see really good jump heights in those individuals where you sit sort of scratching your head thinking, well, do I need to work on their ballistic ability? If they can jump 70 centimeters, do I really need to work on their ballistic ability? Um, so then we have to you know, start digging a little bit deeper. There, that's you know, one extreme example. Normally that doesn't happen. Normally when we're looking at dynamic strength index, it's really giving us a good overview of um, what sort of physical performance characteristics they really need to be working on. At the same time, we'll also look at their total time to take off with the counter movement jump because counter movement jump height is really stable. It doesn't change dramatically, even with fatigue. Um, so what we're looking for is if jump height hasn't changed, has their strategy changed? Has the duration it takes them to apply force decreased? In which case, that's positive. It's, we still want a greater jump height, but that's still a positive adaptation. Um, and then, like I said, we also try and look at rebound jump tests. So we've been playing about, or one of our, one of my colleagues and one of my one of our PhD students, Dr. John McMahon and Andy Badby, have been looking at the counter movement rebound jump. So you perform your counter movement jump, and then instead of a normal landing, immediately do a rebound, because <clears throat> you're quite consistent with your counter movement jump height. Whereas if we do a drop jump and drop off a thirty centimeter box. Um, there's some research by Costley and some much older research as well that shows that there's a huge variation in the height you drop from. You might drop from 15% higher than that box or, or 15 to 20% lower than that box because you stepped down. Um, so it's difficult to make sure you're really comparing like with like. And sometimes we'll use something like the 10-5 test, but the problem is with the 10-5 test, everyone paces the strategy. So it's normally the last four or five jumps which give you the best and most consistent performance. And the ones before that aren't always um, particularly brilliant in terms of the performances we get out of them. So it's almost, well, why do those first five jumps if you get your best in the last five? Is it a pacing strategy? So can we be time efficient? Because 
certainly within in most team sports, they're limited with the amount of time that they can actually um, dedicate to testing. But I hold my hands up. We haven't actually bottomed out which is going to be best at the moment. There are limitations with all those tests. So hopefully once Andy Babb has finished his PhD, um, in a couple of years' time, we'll be able to tell you which one is the best in what sort of thresholds to use to identify um, any, any change in performance. Cool. So <clears throat> I, noticed, I noticed that there's a lot of like team use like counter movement jump or like uh, uh, isometric mid-type pull as a test. But when they're training, they still probably gonna use like dynamic strength or like probably like uh, fly out that kind of stuff. So, what are your thoughts on like isometrics training or isometric testing is getting popular these days? Yeah, isometric training is a really good addition to your normal training if it's used appropriately. Um, what we need to make sure people don't do is use isometric training instead of dynamic training. We need that dynamic training gives us really good transference to sports performance. Um, so we need the dynamic um, training. We need that dynamic strength throughout a full range of motion because within a lot of sports, we don't know exactly what range of motion the athlete's going to go through. Um, we can look at the norms. But actually, in other situations, they're pushed into much greater ranges of motion. So we need to do the dynamic strength, uh, strength training um, predominantly. And then we can supplement the training with some isometric training. And if you're getting close to competition and you're worried that your athlete may be fatigued, maybe a little bit more emphasis on isometric training and less on dynamic because it's less fatiguing. It's less likely to cause muscle soreness. However, if you're not familiar with it, just because it's a novel stimulus, you probably will end up sore the next day. So you have to be cautious with introducing it. Um, if you're worried, if, you know, if any coaches are worried about their athletes being sore after a high load strength training session, you're probably not training your athletes hard enough in the first place um, because the high load strength training should be a relatively low volume. Um, we shouldn't be doing really high volumes normally. There are periods of time when we do, but certainly in season we shouldn't be. Um, so the isometric training can be a real benefit. If you think about the force-velocity relationship, um, we, can we can produce much higher forces during an isometric muscle action than we can during a concentric. So we need to take advantage of that. And we can then get our athletes in different positions, especially if they're struggling a little bit with um, you know, sticking points during, during certain exercises. We can get them in, in that same position you know plus or minus 10 degrees and actually get them working really hard and doing a maximal effort for maybe five seconds we know peak isometric force normally occurs within about two seconds so we don't need to do a 20 or 30 second effort which will be fatiguing so you know a five second maximal effort um the thing that we don't know at the moment is how many what you know what's the ideal duration how many repetitions how many sets what rest periods? There's not enough research in that area at the moment. But if you really want to take advantage of the fact you can generate a much higher force um, during isometric um, training, then we need to be doing maximal effort isometric tasks, but just for a short duration. And like I said, it, it's generally used because it's far less fatiguing than dynamic strength training. So if we're going to supplement some of our dynamic strength training one up, we just need to make sure that those durations are relatively short. They rest in between and build up progressively because it is a novel stimulus. So it could lead to the athlete still being sore because we're generating those much higher forces. So uh, when we, is, is it possible that like if I want to train my athletes like a uh, core squat, can I use it? Can I use the like core squat ISO instead? Uh, you can do, um, but I wouldn't use that exclusively. Um, like, like I said, I'd do some of the dynamic, um, dynamic act activities first, and then maybe add in you know, a few maximal effort repetitions, maybe three or four repetitions of up to five seconds, give them a rest period, and then go again. It may create some type of priming effect as well. So you can always use it in between sets of the dynamic exercise. Just maybe do a five, one five-second effort to really make sure we get all your high-threshold motor units stimulated. Um, that way you might get a beneficial effect moving on to um, the subsequent dynamic set. 
you get exactly the same with plyometric tasks. If you do really high, uh, high intensity sort of um, drop jumps, you, you only need to do two or three in between uh, sets of squats and you can improve your performance in the subsequent set of squats. Um, but it's really aimed at stimulating those high threshold motor units to get everything working optimally um, and not inducing an excessive amount of fatigue. Uh, so they're definitely useful in, in addition to or to replace some of the dynamic strength training, but certainly not to replace all of it. And if you're in a team sports setting, maybe you know your match day minus two, um, so two days before you actually compete, that will be a good time to supplement some of the isometric training because then it is less fatiguing. So does that mean like isometric training only like transfer at a certain angle? <sighs> There's a little bit of more recent research come out in the last few years. It shows it transfers over quite a big um, joint range. All the previous research tended to show um, plus or minus 10 or 15 degrees of whatever joint angle you're at. But that was generally with single joint isometric training and testing, whereas the multi-joint tasks tend to translate over a slightly bigger range of motion. Um, personally, I would suggest getting yourself in that position where you generate the highest forces. So again, if you're looking at something like an isometric squat or an isometric mid-thigh pull position and you're using that to take advantage of that maximum force production, those joint angles that you'd normally get, you know, the 125, 245 degree knee joint angle with an upright trunk, maybe a five degree forward lean, um, that get, allows you to generate the highest forces and the highest rates of force development. So it would make sense to adopt those postures. However, if you've got an athlete who's got a sticking point, maybe in a squat down to that 90 degree knee joint angle, you probably want to get them doing a little bit at that range as well. So they actually can help to improve force production capability at that range. Cool. So is there any difference between like yielding isometric and push isometric? I always like confused about these two. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the way people normally do it is that the yielding is your squat down with a load, you're holding a position, but it's a load that you can use um, during your normal sort of isotonic exercise where you squat down and you come back up from it. But you might pause it at a sticking point and you can do that multiple ways. You can squat down, pause halfway, squat all the way down, pause, come back up halfway, pause again. Now, the nice thing is with that, it increases time under tension. So the amount of stress on the muscle is quite high. However, we're not taking advantage of the fact that we can produce higher forces because we're using a load which we can do for the, both the eccentric and concentric phase. Now, it's good to get people to do that to you know, reinforce their technique, set the foundation for when you go on to the maximal effort push isometrics where it really is you know, you're against a fixed rigid um, bar. It's not going to move and you can put in a maximal effort to make sure they can hold their posture what you don't want somebody doing is being in any of those positions you know if it's an isometric squat and suddenly going into spinal flexion um, so we want to make sure they've got postural control so it can be a nice way to ease them into it um, bearing in mind though that if you're doing the um, yielding isometrics and you hold them for a prolonged period of time there's a huge accumulation of lactic acid if you're doing an isometric muscle action you occlude blood flow to some extent so you might get a hypertrophic effect from doing that which is great but you'll also get a hypertrophic effect from just doing high repetitions. So, you know, it, it depends what you want to get out of doing it. If you are doing the yield in isometric and you're holding for an extended period, you know, it is going to cause fatigue. It will take you longer to recover between sets than a three to five second maximal effort isometric um, where you are, you know, really pushing as hard as possible. So I sort of see the, the more yielding isometrics as a, as a way into doing the maximal effort push isometrics and also you know great for somebody who's potentially um got technique deficiencies that you want to really reinforce postural control at certain points in the range of motion or if they've they've got an injury um it's a great way of slowly introducing them to it you know if you've got a tendon injury you wouldn't go straight into a maximal effort um attempt so you can do nice controlled loading the biggest problem is sometimes is making sure that they're producing forces which are um, sufficient with some, some isometric tasks. So you need a way really of assessing. Um, it's very easy for an athlete or for us ourselves to 
pull an expression that makes it look like we're working really hard, hold our breath, go red in the face, but actually you could be taking it relatively easy. So if, if possible, you need some form of strain gauge or force plates and strain gauges are pretty cheap now to be able to evaluate what effort they're putting in. And you can do the same then with sub-maximal sort of yielding type isometrics. If, if you don't want the athlete to squat with a, with a you know, 80% of their 1RM in pause, we can just get them in that same position and aim for them to get a certain force on the strain gauge and hold that and maintain that force for a period of time. Cool. So uh, since you brought up like uh, pain or like athlete coming back from injury, what about like the rehab side of things? Why is ISO good for like tendon pain? Well, first of all, that, that's not my area of expertise. I'm not a rehabilitator or a physiotherapist or physical therapist, depending on what your country you're in. Um, but it allows you to apply force in a very controlled uh, manner. Now, you know, in terms of the tendons, the tendon doesn't know whether you're going through eccentric, concentric, isometric. It just has a load applied to it from the force being produced from the muscle. Um, so it doesn't know the difference. So it, it allows us to be in a really nice controlled safe environment if somebody's got a tendon injury to apply force to that tendon it also appears to have an analgesic effect so even if you use it early on in your warm-ups if someone's getting a little bit of pain in the tendons sometimes it can mean you can then progress on um, after that warm-up to do some more of the dynamic tasks but the main thing is it's a really safe and easy way again the biggest thing we need to do is try and evaluate the force that they're producing you know, it doesn't matter whether it's strength and conditioning, whether it's general exercise for the normal population, whether it's rehabilitation, we should be applying the principles of progressive overload. That, you know, with isometrics, that's a higher force. That's a longer duration. That's more repetitions because we don't want to progressively increase that duration and make it too long. Uh, but we want to see that there is a progression. And that should either be in, in the duration to some extent, the number of repetitions, the number of sets or the force that we're applying. Um, and if we're applying those principles of progressive overload, then we should get the appropriate adaptations that we want. Um, but yeah, the main thing is it, it tends to have an analgesic effect and it helps with the um, tendons sort of um, remodeling. But that's definitely not, not my area of expertise. Okay, cool. So it, uh, what if I want to like program like uh, all the like dynamic strength training, ISO and eccentric together how i mean not together but like like periodization how would you like program yeah. this well it all depends on your overall goal you know what what should, what's the end goal in say 12 weeks time so if we're going to program for 12 weeks or even if you know if you're looking forward to the next commonwealth games world championships um olympic games you might have to plan for a more more than a 12 month cycle it could be a quadrennial cycle we need to know where we what the end goal is but if we say let's let's look at you know maybe um an eight week program if the end goal is to really increase um maximum power and the ability to produce high forces rapidly in season is an example because that's most of the season in most sports we need to do some heavy strength training first because we know that if we increase maximum force capability we get some improvements in um rapid force production but because the volumes are higher during that phase what we then need to do is have a period where we focus more on the speed strength aspect so we still do some high load strength training but there's some more ballistic and higher velocity movements in there with the intention to move as rapidly as possible or explosively as most people would refer to it um, and that decrease in volume during that time um, and making sure that you're not inducing fatigue during the repetitions will allow super compensation from that strength training with the strength training providing the base for those you know higher forces to be produced prior to that if you're not in season you may have even focused on strength endurance and hypertrophy to increase cross-sectional area etc now if we're focusing on strength training and looking at maximum force production we probably need to do a little bit of isometric training within that again if if you've got limited time, if you're working with novice and beginner athletes, you probably just need to focus on the basic dynamic strength training, um, unless there are specific areas that need strengthening. But we, so we'd focus on, on the dynamic strength training and include some isometric. But again, that could be built in in between sets. 
If you're limited with time, like you get in a lot of team sports, if you've got a three or four minute rest period between, you know, sets of five reps, uh, you could easily just do a, a five second isometric hold, you know, maximal effort hold. Um, so the pushing isometrics to really try and make sure you've got your, all your motor units synchronized and everything's working as hard and fast as it can. And that has to be the intention to push hard. You could also um, add in, you know, you probably don't want to do every training session, do the isometrics. You can probably then do another session in the week where you do some eccentric type training. So if your athlete's competent, you could use some weight releases. So you put weight releases on the bar. You normally need, you know, somewhere around about 80% of your 1RM on, let's say, a squat on the bar, and then around about 30 to 40% on the weight releases. So you end up at about 110, 120% of your 1RM on the descent. And that almost forces you to, to either do one repetition with the eccentric overload, and then your normal four repetitions afterwards, or you end up using a cluster set. So you do the one repetition, the, weights fall, the weight releases fall off, you put the bar back on the rack, you add the weight releases back on. That's probably not the best way to start it because that gives you a much higher volume um, and a much higher load on every repetition. So we probably just want to do it for the first rep of each set um, if we're first introducing something like um, eccentric overload with weight releases. Um, and there's multiple different ways of applying that. You know, I'm just giving one example. Personally, I prefer using a front squat because if there's any instability, I can get rid of the bar really easily. Whereas with a back squat, you've got to, you know, drop the bar and get out from under it. Still set up the safety safety um, bars within your squat rack so that if you do have to drop it, it's as safe as it can be. Um, but we can add in maybe one day of using something like that eccentric overload and a day of, of the more isometric uh, maximal effort tasks. As I mentioned earlier, closest to competition, game day, match day maybe use those isometrics because they're less fatiguing. Um, one or two days after competition, so furthest away from your next competition, use some eccentric overload. But be, be cautious with it initially and be progressive with it. So don't jump straight in at really high lows. Don't go with a 40% of your 1RM on the weight releases. Maybe to get your athlete used to it, they've never done it before, start it. 80% of 1RM on the bar, 20% on the weight releases. And maybe a next set, if they feel competent and confident, go up another 5%. Um, but make it progressive and incremental within a session and across you know, a four, six, eight-week block um, because it can be quite fatiguing. Um, and you don't want your athlete coming in being really sore the next day because of that one a novel stimulus and the high eccentric overload. Uh, but it will give you some big adaptations. Um, you know, you will get substantial um, stimulus from those types of exercise. And we're really then taking advantage of the fact that eccentrically, we can produce really high forces. And isometrically, you can produce much higher forces than you can concentrically. But you've got to start off cautiously and progressively with it. Um, and it's just in to supplement the more um, dynamic strength training. Again, what you probably want to do with the eccentric side of it is do that with your early exercises. If you're Got, if you've got front squats or back squats or something in there first, do it on the first exercise. Don't introduce, you know, really high load eccentric um, overload with weight releases once the athlete's already starting to fatigue. That almost defeats the object and potentially increases their risk of injury. Cool. So uh, you mentioned like uh, for eccentric training, there's like weight releaser, right? But yep. it's kind of like slow eccentric but on the first first velocity curve as the speed go faster on the eccentric side the force is going to be greater right so how about like yeah. fast eccentric st stuff yeah but the problem is you see is the force velocity curve is based on fascicle lengthening and shortening velocity from individual muscle fibers um Whereas, and that works the same if we're using an isokinetic dynamometer. So if you're on an isokinetic dynamometer and we're doing eccentrics for the hamstrings, the aim is to basically do a maximal isometric muscle action yourself. The dynamometer will overcome that force and accelerate your, the, the extension of the knee. Now, to ex if you've got a maximum isometric force, to extend that knee more rapidly, it has to produce more force. If we try and do that with something like the Nordic hamstring exercise, if we move at high velocity, we have to produce less force for gravity to allow us to fall forwards quickly. So that 
doesn't make sense to do it with something like that. And if we're doing it with a squat, when we squat down, you know, we're not producing high forces as we go down. We're decreasing um, the force we produce so that gravity um, can actually allow us to start accelerating down. Once we start moving, then we produce a force equal to our system mass. So that's equal to my body mass plus whatever's on my shoulders on the barbell. So if you squat rapidly on the way down, what you end up with is minimal force being produced for, to allow gravity to accelerate you down. Then you have to hit the brakes really hard at the bottom. So if you're up at a high load, if you're trying to use 80% of 1RM, you're not going to squat down quickly because you're yeah. not going to stop at the bottom. You're, you're going to get squashed. Yeah. Um, so to take advantage of that really high force aspect, most of the training should be relatively low velocity with super maximal loads. If you're using light loads, you can then squat down quickly. But what we've got to consider is the unweighting phase, that point that you relax and start accelerating down, the impulse achieved during that is equal to the impulse when you break. But the problem we have is if we accelerate down too quickly, initially, we'll start breaking over a longer duration, especially with a high load. So what no one's done yet, and I've not seen any research on this, is look at how load affects both the velocity on the way down and therefore your momentum um, and how it affects the braking side of things. Because if you squat down, if you do it now just with body weight, if I stood up and allowed myself to complete, let, let my legs completely relax, almost like you're about to do a counter movement jump, I'm going to have to hit the brakes really hard at the bottom. Yeah. And that's because of the momentum that I've achieved, which is a product of the velocity I'm moving at and the force that I need to produce to decelerate my mass at the bottom. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to have a high, if it's my body mass alone, no external load, we're going to have a moderate body mass of, you know, I'm over 100 kilos. But um, so if I'm dropping down quickly, I've got a really high momentum. Whereas if I put 100 kilos on my shoulders, I'm not going to drop as quickly. So what no one's really done is unpicked whether actually going through um, almost that rapid unweighting and then hitting the brakes at the bottom, what the effect of load is. But you can pretty much guarantee as you increase load, you will decrease your velocity because you've got to try and decelerate at the bottom. But we don't know whether that's um, going to be proportional, whether there's a certain load, you know, a certain percentage of your maximum, which you can then get optimal forces. And the other thing we need to bear in mind is when we actually break at the bottom of that, that impulse could be a high force over a really short duration, or it could be a moderate force over a much longer duration. So we need to take, take that into account. And no one's really unpicked that. Um, and you'll, you will see dramatically different strategies of athletes when they try and adopt the, uh, try and do these sorts of movements. Some of it is purely confidence. You know, stick a high load on somebody's um, shoulders and get them to drop down into a squat quickly and hit the brakes. They won't go particularly fast over the first few reps because they need to know that they can stop. Yeah. Uh, so the high velocity centrics with multi-joint exercise is, is definitely something we need to look into in a lot more detail but there isn't enough research and at the moment, and some of it is completely counterintuitive. Um, you know, I've seen some stuff posted on social media recently where they were talking about trying to work out rate of force development, um, but with a position transducer, you've got no chance. The velocity on position transducers isn't as reliable as it could be. So then trying to calculate rate of force development from um, displacement time data uh, you're not going to get anything reliable. You'd need a force plate. You need a decent force plate system, which analyzes the, or you have to analyze the, um, the data appropriately yourself. And it's a doubt if it's built into any of the commercial software packages. Um, but you'd really be looking to sort of unpick that impulse. We know we can get a really a requirement for a really high impulse, but then how does that athlete apply the force? And there'll be benefits to both an impulse where it's that long duration and moderate force, but also really high force over a short duration. I don't think you're going to get the high force over a short duration with high loads. So you're probably better off doing, you know, like altitude drops and those sorts of things where um, you'll then sort of decelerate more efficiently and effectively at the bottom of it. Um, and it's probably safer than doing it with a, you know, 100 kilos or so on your shoulders. But hey, I'm, you know, hopefully somebody will tell me that I'm completely wrong in a few years time when the research has been done. Um, but at the moment, you know, I think when you unpick some of the underpinning biomechanics, there's, 
there's a huge amount of limitations and some of it is just completely counterintuitive and um, it's interesting watching the discussions on social media and looking at some of the videos that people put on there because some of that gives, gives us ideas for other research that we can go and do and how we can try and answer some of those questions, um, which I'll probably do. I'm in the lab. I'm examining all day tomorrow, but I'm in the lab Tuesday, uh, Wednesday morning. So I'm certainly going to play about with some of those and see what happens just with those incremental loads. Um, we've got a few PhD students and stuff in, so I'll probably subject them to it rather than myself. <laughs> cool, man. Cool. So I want to go back to like the rehab side of thing. You mentioned like tenant don't know like uh, actually your body don't know what, whether we're doing like ISO, eccentric or like concentric. So uh, there's a lot of like people or coaches talk about like eccentric is good for like tendon health. From what we just discussed, can I like understand in this way? It's, it's like as long as like we're doing like maybe like heavy lifting, time under tension, it's going to be good for our ten tendon. Yeah, definitely. Um, and the tendons seem to adapt much more to that time under tension than anything more plyometric or ballistic. Um, so there's definitely something about the time under tension, which is key. And also, if you look at a lot of the rehab protocols, they emphasize the eccentric phase, but it's not true eccentric overload. It's a very slow, controlled lengthening of the muscle and you'll get some lengthening of the tendon but actually it's not taking advantage of that really high load eccentric that we can do most of the time you know it's not it's not using a force which is greater than you can produce concentrically or isometrically and that makes sense you wouldn't introduce that to an injured tendon you know or a tendon that's inflamed or um, giving somebody pain but you need to progressively build up to that if you just stay at a submaximal load we're not really taking advantage of it However, what it might allow to happen is, you know, more efficient and effective lengthening of the muscle fascicles um, when we do that slow controlled movement, especially with somebody that's got pain inhibition in there. Again, that's not my area, but you would imagine if you emphasize a really low velocity movement, which is submaximal, um, you're going to get more efficient and effective lengthening of those muscle fascicles. At the same time, we, it's controlled. So you're less likely to make that injury any worse. Um, and you've got that time under tension. What we probably don't want in those situations is, you know, plyometric tasks, even for simple things that look really high, look low intensity, like bilateral ankle hopping, you know, a skipping type movement that we do with jump rope. Um, because that actually means you'll get lengthening of the, the tendon from the proximal and distal end, if it's the Achilles or medial gastroc tendon. Um, so, it's a very short duration that you're applying force for, but very, very high forces. That's not something you want to introduce at the beginning. That's, that's going to be right at the end stage if, they're the, the, if it's those structures that are injured. Um, but again, like I said, most of the time, what you see is uh, very submaximal loads being used, which is fine if it's that prolonged time under tension, because the, then you're subjecting um, the tendon to a high, high stimulus. Um, and then you just progress and add more load or make the forces higher, but probably shorten the duration. What we don't want is to increase both the time under tension and the forces applied at the same time. That would be like saying, well, we're going to add load, we're going to do more reps, and we're going to do more sets. You just wouldn't do that with normal programming. So why would you with an injured um, structure? Chaos. Cool. So uh, last thing, okay. What, like, what gets you into, like, doing research for the isometric training and isometric testing? Primarily because I looked through all the research that was out there and there was loads and loads of contradictory information, and there still is. You know, we've, we've spent a lot of time doing stuff on the isometric mid-thigh pull, uh, collaborated with people across the world. You know, it was originally set up at all public. The first thing published about the isometric mid-thigh pull was by um, Professor Mike Stone and Professor Greg back in 1997. But since then, there have been a whole range of different protocols that people have used. I still see it done completely incorrectly on social media. Poor positions. It don't replicate the start of the second pull. Um, no lifting straps being used. Opposing grips being used. All sorts of weird and wonderful things, which are uh, not done well. So a lot of it was really to try and 
see if any of those discrepancies that you see in the research do make a difference or not and how much you need to standardize the testing um, because you need to make sure that any results you get are reliable and meaningful. Um, and then at the same time with the isometric type of training, it's something I'd like to look into more. The problem is the training studies take a huge amount of time and you need access to athletes that are going to be, you know, adhere to that training protocol. So um, I had a discussion with uh, Danny Lum last week, I think it was, about another training intervention that he's starting um, and some other things that we can collaborate on. So it's, it's an area which is really under-researched, under you know, even in terms of things like the isometric squat, we need to do more research there because there's still a dramatic range of joint angles that are used, even the cueing, this really good work from um, David Drake during his PhD um, under Robbie Kennedy that's been published, but there's still more work that needs to be done. S certain things like if we're looking at dynamic strength index, we get higher forces during an isometric squat. So can we use the same thresholds that we normally use you know 0.6 of a D for dsi is being ballistic point at, uh, sorry 0.6 being dynamic at maximizing you know maximum i've got that the wrong way around now so 0.6 meaning you can only express 60 percent of your force isometric force dynamically so in that situation we need to focus on the dynamic side of things and 0.8 being that you're ex expressing at least 80% of your isometric force dynamically, so we need to increase your maximum strength. That gets skewed with, a with an isometric squat. And people are starting to look now at the um, isometric belt squat, which we're going to, we've played about a little bit, and we're going to start researching that properly next year. That definitely skews some of the, um, those thresholds. Like I mentioned to you earlier, I've seen some data on basketball players where you know, some of them are getting 80 to 100 newtons per kilogram during the isometric belt squat. Uh, they're not going to get anywhere near 80% of that during a counter movement jump. So do we need to do something different? Should we consider with athletes like that doing something like a, um, a drop jump or some form of rebound jump where those forces will be much higher? Would that be appropriate? No idea. No one's done it yet. So there's lots of different things there. When you start, the more you dig into the research, the more you suddenly think, oh my God, there's, you know, there's no consensus on how to do this. And there's loads of gaps in the area. There's lots of good practice going on, but not necessarily being evaluated effect as effectively as it could. Because you know, as a practitioner, if it's working, you stick with what's working. You don't want yeah. to experiment too much in case it doesn't work. Um, but we see some good practice and what we need to then do is say, well, okay, we see a squad doing this. We see another squad using this practice. Can we compare them and see which is most effective? Can we refine it? Can we tweak it? Um, you know, and that's where, like I said earlier, we don't know um, the optimal duration for those pushing maximal effort isometrics, the sets, the reps, etc. How to really program that effectively. We, we don't have all the information, you know, and at the same time, we need to then try and provide that information to practitioners and, you know, the end user, because we know how to program dynamic strength training, but you can, you know, you can have a look at some of the programs that people use and think, oh, actually, I thought people knew what they're doing. And you look at some of the programs and think, well, that's not really doing what we think it is. You know, if you're training for maximum strength, why are you using sets of eight to 12 repetitions? That's not strength. You will get stronger. Um, but it's not strength training, so don't call it strength training. Um, so, yeah, really, it was just, you know, the more you dig into the research, the more you start finding gaps and areas that we really need to research things more. Sometimes it's counterintuitive. Sometimes you look at things and think, actually, I was wrong. I need to change what I'm doing. Or actually, that's different to what I found previously. But this is why it was the subjects. It was, you know, the scenario we were in. It was the point in a season, etc. So it's, it's just really interesting to look at all those different areas and try and answer some of those questions. But that's the same whether it's isometric training, whether it's your normal dynamic training, integration of weightlifting into um, sports, enhancing sports performance, eccentric training. There's so much more that we, we still need to, um, need to find out. And there's stuff that we can do in universities. We're quite lucky that we actually work a lot with a range of different sports teams. So we can also, we can sort of pilot it in a university setting and then apply it in the real world setting with some of those different teams and then go back to the drawing board and say, well, okay, it worked in a controlled environment with a load of students. 
sport with a load of amateur athletes. It didn't work as well in the, um, you know, in the sort of professional setting. And why is that? What's different? What could we do differently? And how could we potentially then um, improve that practice? Not necessarily what they're doing, but it's all the constraints that are put upon those individuals when we're trying to put a, a training intervention in, in place. We did a training intervention recently where I think the compliance rate in an academy um, football team or soccer team, depending on where you are in the world listening to this, um, was around about 60%. So 60% of the planned training was completed. One athlete was down at about 25% because of the pandemic. There were people in, you know, I think he was 17 years old. He had to play for the under 18s, the under 23s and the first team because athletes, other athletes weren't available to play. That's, that's the real world. So we need to figure out how we can accommodate those sorts of things as well. Um, and that's where for somebody like that, playing that frequently, the isometric training might be really beneficial because you can get a high force stimulus so they don't detrain or hopefully don't detrain when they might have a period of three weeks where they're playing you know two or three games in a week and in, in that example the person i was referring to it was pretty much three games a week that they were playing for a three-week period so in that time they had no strength training stimulus and their strength performance declined as you would imagine um, that the stimulus from playing games isn't sufficient to maintain that maximal force production, um, unfortunately. Cool. So you mentioned like there's a lot of like contradictory for the researchers, research, yep. right? So for coaches like me or coaches out there uh, who want to like, read more, like which, how should they be, what or what are those things should we be noticing when we're like picking the research we want to read? Uh, well, I think the key thing is read as much as you possibly can. Keep reading. You know, one of my um, previous PhD students who's now working with us, uh, Dr. Nick Ripley, pointed out to some of our first year students the other week that if they read one manuscript, one journal article per day, just one, throughout the duration of their degree, they would have read over a thousand articles. That would give them a really good level of knowledge. Um, and that should be on top of what we ask them to read. You know, even if you went to, um, for, for a first year undergraduate student, one additional paper per week, that's 52 extra in a year. So pick an area you're interested in, pick something that, you know, don't look at every topic area. If you really need to focus on strength and power development with an athlete, pick the research in those areas and really try and get to grips with the methods that are used. Just because the methods are used regularly doesn't mean they're um, as good as they could be. Um, so look at how things like um, how people are assessing force production, how they're getting from, if it's a jump, how they're getting from your force time data to jump high, etc. And it shouldn't be flight time. Uh, if you've got a force plate, then you should actually be using far more sophisticated analysis. Uh, have a look at some of the work of um, Dr. John McMahon that I work with, Dr. Jason Lake, uh, Dr. Pete Mundy, sorry, Professor Jason Lake, um, Dr. Pete Mundy and the work that they've done on assessment of uh, force time characteristics, uh, Dr. John Harry as well. Um, because when you look through a lot of the research, they've used the easiest ways to collect the data and the easiest ways to analyze the data, which doesn't always give you the full picture. Um, and also look at what athletes are being used. Uh, are they actually strength trained? I've seen some stuff on social media from researchers recently where they say they're strength trained and they're doing some velocity based training. And I'm looking at the loads they're lifting thinking that athlete is not strength trained and that technique is awful. <laughs> um, so, Social media is good for certain things. It gets the information out there, but it also allows us to look and go, well, okay, if that's the practice of some researchers, uh, we'll probably discredit some of that straight away. You know, we've only seen a snapshot though. We've seen one. They might put something on that shows the highest velocity movement. Same as when put, somebody puts something on that shows the best one or eight. Technique is never as good as it could be. If you are going for a true maximal effort, technique will break down. Um, but look in, in detail at the methods that people are using. And, so many times people will post, say, you know, put something in an article saying this is the first study to. It's very rarely the first study to do anything. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it was normally done 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And yeah. 
people just haven't read that research yeah um, and we're all guilty of that you know the more you dig into it the more you find there's papers from you know four or five decades ago that you haven't ever read and you can't believe you've never read them but the main thing is is learn to critique the research look at their methods look at their conclusions and also think about are the findings meaningful because you can get something which is statistically significant and you look at the change that's occurred and you think well that's not going to affect my athlete in any way. You know, a three kilo increase in a back squat over an eight week training period. That's within measurement error. And it's probably not going to transfer to any athletic performance. If you're yeah. a powerlifter and you've got a three kilo increase and you're a world-class powerlifter and you've got a three kilo increase on every lift. Fantastic. That's brilliant. The average person that's well within measurement error and it doesn't mean anything um so you know you've, you've got to take things with a pinch of salt and really learn to to unpick that research and identify um what people want is their research to be impactful everyone does I, I want mine to be impactful so you've got to bear in mind everyone has a bit of bias in terms of how positive their findings are and the problem is it's really difficult to publish findings where you say actually we found no difference or we found no change because nobody wants to read it and nobody wants to publish it. But for every publication that's out there saying there was an improvement, there's probably another five that are in the bin somewhere um, because they didn't get published. Um, so, you know, it's really a case of reading things in, in real detail and trying to critique the research as much as possible. And then think, can I do this in the real world? Because there's a lot of very good laboratory-based studies where you look at it and go, well, okay, if I tried that across, you know, especially if it's single joint training, if I used that and tried to use that for every single single joint exercise that we might have to use instead of a squat or instead of a bench press or whatever the exercise might be, that's going to take me probably an you know two hours to get through a workout and I've got 40 minutes. So you've got to think about where it may or may not be beneficial. Cool, man. Really love it. Thank you. No problem at all. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for your time, man. I know you're like super busy, although you're at COVID and stay at home right now. Really appreciate it. And actually, I learned a lot from our conversation right now. I'm going to give it a listen yep. and take some notes from it. Appreciate it. Brilliant. If you have any further questions, just give me a shout. I'm more than happy if, whenever I'm okay. free to jump back on and have a chat about things. Okay. So if there's like coaches are interested in what we're talking about today, where can they reach out to you? Um, easiest, well, they can either message me on uh, on Instagram, Twitter, etc., uh, which is Paul Comfort 1975, or email me, uh, which is p at Salford, which is s a l f o r d dot a c dot uk. Cool, man. Love it. Stay healthy, okay? I'm gonna, we're going to do Eric. it again. Yeah, catch you soon. Have a good day. All right, thanks, Eric. Bye. Thanks. Bye.